0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I'm looking forward to these next couple of hours together. Hope your day's been going well. Say, I want to mention, if you are uh, interested in this, we're going to have a live taping of the show on March 26th. a Thursday night. Doors open at 6.30 and the program will start at 7 and run to 8.30. It's going to be with Dr. Peter Kapsner and Dr. Jim Bilby. They'll be my special guests. And it's going to be living in a post-Christian world. Now to get you excited about coming to the event, we'll be serving post-fresh coffee and cookies. So it'll be outstanding. So go to myfaithradio.com, get your name on the list. It's going to be a great night. And I'm going to start off today's show with Robert J. Nash. He's written a book called Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. Take 60 seconds and bring on Rob.
1: Faith Radio has been a trusted voice for over seven decades, sharing the good news of the gospel, lifting up the name of Jesus, and helping listeners grow in their faith. And while our mission has remained the same, our impact is growing through AM and FM radio signals across the Upper Midwest and Hartford, reaching additional listeners online and on the app and on demand. And It's your prayer and financial support that equip us in this mission. So join the team and keep Faith Radio going strong by making a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. Faith
2: Radio offers a free resource that will ground you in your faith each week. It's the Prayer Devotional email, and it's easy to receive. Simply sign up at myfaithradio.com under the Subscriptions tab. Then you'll be sent a weekly message with words of inspiration and prayer. It's a wonderful way to connect with God and equip you for the week ahead. Once again, just visit myfaithradio.com, click on Subscriptions, and sign up. You'll be blessed by the Prayer Devotional email.
0: If you've ever been at the bedside of a loved one who was dying, you would be pretty concerned, pretty interested in what their final words might be. I bet you always remember that. But when it comes to the last words of the savior of the world, I think we're even more interested than ever. And the seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross, the last words were compiled a book written by Robert Jay Nash. He's my guest on the show today. Rob, welcome. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's uh, nice to meet you, Bill, and yeah. I appreciate your time. You know, it's interesting if you just kind of Google, you know, famous last words of people, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of weight that goes into yeah. people's last words, and I find it fascinating. I probably read through 50 of them.
1: Did you? Okay. Yeah, some are humorous, some are sobering. Yeah. Uh, Christ, I think, are amazing. And so it was fun to kind of put that together and, and meditate for a long time on what he said. Yeah. Um, and and so, that, I, yeah, I came up with this book. I
0: love the book and I love uh, the topic. And I'm so glad you're on the show. Um, I know you grew up in Minnesota and you're now out in Michigan. So, what, six kids? Mm-hmm. You're a busy guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Six kids. I am very busy. We got uh, swimming and tennis. And I mean, they're in the throes of, we're, Every night we're driving everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. And, I'm and busy and having fun. And you forgot grocery shopping. Oh, yeah. Hours. That's a lot of
0: mouths to feed. Yep. 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 But as we look at the uh, the seven sayings from Christ on the cross, and it's so powerful, and you did a really interesting um, job of sort of coming up with a key word for each one of the sayings. And I would, I'd love to jump mm-hmm. into that today and as we start to prepare yeah. our hearts and minds for Lent and for Easter, there couldn't be a better time to start meditating on all of these.
1: Yeah, I took, a, I, you know, Jesus says seven different things. And I took a word. I'm not great at titles, but I feel like I'm pretty good with words. Yeah. And so I took a key word from the, the sayings to capture what is he saying in that saying and then explore it in a in a devotional, inspirational kind of way. It's eight chapters, so it's not super long, um, but I went through and I, I found a keyword and uh, and built the—actually, I wrote on some Good Friday messages that I started uh, with a number of years ago, and then extended it to kind of get every saying and then a, a kind of conclusion chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is offering all kinds of uh, encouragement. He is, he is modeling incredible things, um, but I want to kind of go through these one by one. Cause I have my favorite, but let's sure. uh, start with father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I have a feeling I know what that keyword is in that one.
1: Yeah. So I picked forgive. Um, and, uh, I think Jesus, you know, when I, if I go through suffering and trials and difficulties in my life, my, my first gut reaction is to like protect myself. It is to flee. It is to fight back. It is to defend. What does Jesus do? He's pronouncing a prayer to the Lord for forgiveness, um, for the Jew and Gentile before Him, and it it, it's powerful. It, it models to us, I think, a heart that we need to have. But it also speaks to us of the heart He has for us through faith in Christ. And so, I, I kind of kick it off with what I think is sequentially, chronologically, the first word of forgiveness. There, Rob, wouldn't that's you? The, that's the first one. Yeah, Rob, wouldn't you say that the, that
0: Jesus His His default was just kind of being in a state of always forgiving, he was always passing on forgiveness and making it such a key part of his ministry that it's just so like him to be hanging on a cross, dying and and petitioning the Father, forgive them. I mean, could you just imagine the emotion? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's what I try, I try to do, is try to get into that, the emotion of it and kind of the feel of it. I think you're right. I think he's got a different disposition and default position than, you know, my natural bent and proclivity. It is not, it is not that way. And so I want it to be more that way, but yeah, it's just amazing. And he actually speaks of forgiveness multiple times. So I try to weave that in there, but yeah, it's amazing. Our Lord is, is so kind and so gracious. He's, he's so wonderful. Yeah.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. And a great reminder for all of us today, we can take action to forgive someone or, make an effort to reach out to someone that we need forgiveness from or we need to offer an right. apology to. Um, what a great reminder. Of this is the default of our Savior. As he was nailed to a cross, bleeding and dying, he still wants to forgive people. That's so powerful, Rob. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Every day is a, a day of mercy. And so like if there's someone out there who you know thinks I've gone too far, his forgiveness is bigger than that, yeah, and if someone's like holding on to bitterness, today's a day where they could show mercy and grace, looking at Christ and and considering what he's done, offer that grace and forgiveness to someone else today yeah. as well
0: because we sometimes uh, think about are we in the mood to forgive somebody? you know if I've had a good night's sleep and a nice steak dinner <laughs> yeah, I might forget I might forgive that rob guy for what he did, but no, not jesus He's right. he's hanged, he's hanging on the cross, dying the amount of pain he was in, and he wants forgiveness. Amazing. Hmm. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to the second saying, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's out of Luke chapter 23, verse 43. i guessing
1: what word came out of that one? I yeah, said so today. I was kind of, it was right now. That's the, you know, that talk about that grace and forgiveness. Here's a guy who, I really focus on that thief next to Christ. It, the, the, the sayings birthed out of the, this, there's two thieves next to him. You probably remember that. Uh-huh. Your listeners probably remember that. Oh, of course. One's railing against him. One's attacking Jesus. Yeah. The other one comes to his defense. He said, this man's done nothing wrong. In saying that, these guys have done something wrong. They're being crucified for their thievery. And uh, they're an example for all the people to see in this horrible in this horrible way. And he then he turns to Jesus and said, will you remember me in paradise? And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I... I try to take the reader into uh, to really consider what what's going on there. Uh, that that grace and forgiveness. This man has has nothing to offer. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I, I you know, he not only had a good day, but I've done pretty well today. You know, I've done my devotions, maybe um, I've donated to charity, uh, but when it comes, when it all comes down to it, I think we're more like that thief uh, if we're really true uh, and honest with ourselves. Um, and when we're naked before the Lord, standing. Before him, what do we have to offer? We can offer what he offered. He offered uh, that little bit of faith, that seed of faith. And I, the great thing is he extends this offer not just to him 2,000 years ago, this thief, but to us as well. Um, so it says in First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love that. So yeah. that's, that's the focus of today.
0: Let's, let's put ourselves in the, in the mindset of this other criminal being crucified. And he says to Jesus, will you remember me? And you would think at that point, there is no one in the world that could help me given my situation. And Jesus, he would look at Jesus and say, are you saying that there's something for a person like me? And it's so powerful to think, yes, that was what Jesus was offering him in that moment. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Stunning. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I just, yeah, it's it's worshipful, honestly.
0: Yeah. All right, Rob, let's move mm-hmm. on uh, to the next one. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your yep. mother. That comes out of John 19.
1: Yeah, and so here he, Okay, this is the third thing he's saying here, and again, I'm astounded. Where's his focus? Where would be my focus? My focus would be, you know, to be honest, would be more self selfward. That's uh-huh. uh, again the, my struggle. I'm mean, a pastor; I struggle with that. Uh, maybe, maybe others can relate. Christ, where is his focus? It's on this mom, his mom, and and the kind of provision and care for her. There's your son, and then he turns to this disciple. John, here's your mother. Now, a thing that to note here, John has just betrayed him. Sure, he's at the cross, but where was he when Jesus was being taken away? He went running. Where was he when Jesus said, could you pray with me for an hour? He was sleeping. And so Jesus offers this kindness, this compassion, this task um, that uh, that is broader than just, I think, them. I think there's in here an invitation for us— um, to see the compassion of the Lord that's extended to us, there there was one event I bring this up, uh, you know, briefly that that people might remember, where Jesus is is confronted by his mother and brothers. They're there to kind of corral him and hinder his ministry, and he said, "You know who my brother and brothers are? It's those who do the will of God." And and so we I think we see expanded here um, that you know the 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 broad the breadth of the family of God that we have. Um, this familiar familiar relation here, as well as Jesus' compassion to his mom and to this disciple who who probably is, if, if I was in his shoes, thinking pretty low thoughts of myself and not, not feeling really good, and I'm, I'm struggling, I just betrayed my Lord, and here he's dying, you know. So that's what, when I come to behold, that's when I when I think of behold, look at, the, look at what's happening here. That's, mm. So that was the third chapter, behold.
0: Yeah, I want to meditate on that just for a second, but let's go to break real quick. Uh, Rob Nash is my guest. We're chatting about his book, Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to be having... Robert J. Nash as my guest. His book is Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. We, uh, right before break, Rob, we were talking about Woman, Behold Your Son. And I know woman was not a derogatory term at all, because um, this was his mother, and his mother just watched him get crucified. Can you imagine?
1: Mm. Yeah, I feel I feel horrible for people who have lost their children. I haven't haven't had that experience, Mm -hmm. but I try to I try to imagine that as a pastor when I'm preaching, you know, as I come to Sunday morning Mm -hmm. or as I wrote this book, I'm trying to think through what is that like? Um, That loss has got to be gut wrenching. And actually, she was given this gift of a prophetic warning um, in the, the temple in Jerusalem early on. The sword will pierce her soul. And here it's coming to fruition. Wow. I, I, that is, that is, that is so painful. But, but Christ's love is, is so compassionate that instead of a word you know, thought, He's extending this outward thought to care for His mother. There, I, I, I can't. I don't think there's a dry eye among His believers at that point. I mean, just grief upon grief. Maybe the tree, tears would have run dry at that point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's horrible. Yeah. But His His love is so great. And yeah.
0: I don't know if you've ever had, you know, uh, you've got six kids, so maybe one of them fell down and skinned their knee, and just when you see them suffering or slightly injured, uh, or maybe you've watched them have an injury greater than a skinned knee, your heart just breaks, and I'm sure your wife would just want to pick them up and hold them and, you know, kiss their boo-boo, and you know what I mean? And then for Jesus' mother to watch him endure the most horrific form of torture and painful death, and then the beauty of him hanging on the cross, providing for this mother of his, and saying, "John, this is your behold your mother," and just entrusting those two together. I, I tell you, Rob, that just moves my heart beyond belief.
1: Yeah, you express, you express that well in uh, that entrusting. There's just a care and compassion there. Yeah,
0: I mean that's on his to do mm. list as he's dying. It's just unbelievable. What do we learn from that? Mm-hmm. What does that teach us? Stop being so selfish. I, I, I think there's, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: That's, I think so.
0: All right, let's get down to the next one. Yeah.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, the next one I have is uh, why. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and so now you get this feel like this is more that I can relate to that. I I, I can relate to that, but you know, that kind of distance, why is this happening to me kind of thought. But it's unique about this one is it's not just a a shaking your fist at God. Mm -hmm. There's actually, and I I, I imagine you're aware of this, and and many of your listeners are aware that there is a prophetic fulfillment that's happening in this Psalm 22. This is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the midst of this, I, I do think the Lord, He's experiencing the wrath of God for the for the sins of the world, for the sin of man, he's experiencing that. This this kind of turning your back, the the forsakenness. So there is that experience, but there's also this prophetic word that's being fulfilled. So in his mind, so he, remember he's dying of asphyxiation. I think sometimes we think he's bleeding to death or being beaten to death. It, uh, medically, we know that he he, he even to breathe. He has to push himself up on his hands mm-hmm. and his feet. And so each breath, each word has this weight of significance. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he is, <clears throat> he's thinking of all of Psalm 22, which has, they cast lots for my garment. You know, they're mocking him. They pierced him. It has prophetic fulfillments throughout from the beginning to the end, and even, and ends looking forward to a uh the uh, the um the resurrection and the fruit of the nations uh following him there's this there's this prophetic joy at the end and i think what with the the why here i think what what i try to do in the book and try to help uh, us think about is he's taking our place at that point he's doing what we sh- what should be done to us the wrath of god's being poured out on him and taking our place, He is the, the the substitute for us, which is another b- beautiful, lovely thing that just grabs my heart and fills me with worship for Him. Yeah, Amen
0: to that. All right, what about I thirst? I'd love to hear some more about that.
1: I started looking into thirst and kind of like how much of our our world's made up of water, our bodies made up of water. Um, I didn't put all that in there in our in the book, but you know we're thirsty people, right? We long for for satisfaction in a lot of different things, and here, Christ—I think there's a prophetic element to it, but there's also this human humanness to it. So not only do we have the substitute, who, who's God the uh, the God Man, who's took our place, but you have the Son of Man. You have uh, uh, Jesus became fully man. He took on the uh, humanity in the flesh and was was made like us in every respect, tempted in every way. And here he's thirsting and. And 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 so we can resonate with this God who cares so much that He became one of us, um, where sometimes I think we can feel alone and, and disconnected in the world. But this gives us this connecting point. Um, and so I I focus on I thirst as a as that that connecting point and to to focus on His humanity of Christ. Mm-hmm. All right, we're coming down to
0: the wire here. Let's see if we can't squeeze these last two in in the time we have remaining. Okay. Okay. Yeah
1: it is finished
0: not quite yet but it is finished finished yeah
1: yeah right so you think maybe this is the last word it's not the last word it's finished um you know i had looked at all the different ways that the cross was uh what is he accomplishing on the cross and i boiled them down into a few different things and seeing that we are redeemed we are bought we are purchased we are forgiven he takes away our sin there's a hope of heaven there's this there's this prophetic fulfillment that is that is found from Genesis to Revelation that is that is culminating in this this event on the cross. And so, when it's finished, it's finished, and that can we can take our burdens, all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, and bring it to the cross today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're it, it is finished. The last word um, is, uh, Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. So, with that one, I focus on the fatherhood of God. And there's this interpersonal relationship we see with Christ and the Father. And then, well, the beauty of that is the Bible speaks to he is, God is our Father through faith in Christ. And so, for those of us, you know, I, had a, a, I have a wonderful earthly father, but nothing compares to the fatherhood of God. And if you've had a bad father, a father who hasn't, you know, done what he's supposed to do, maybe treat you really bad. We have a wonderful heavenly Father. How it is through this pivot point in history, this cross that happened, this work on the cross that happened two thousand years ago, and so that's where that chapter comes in. And I um, I sum up with kind of like a more of a poetic ending, the kind of a, a conclusion, mm-hmm. summing up the different words of Christ. You know, Rob,
0: yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking over these these sayings, and he starts with Father, forgive them. But then uh three later, he's saying, "My God, my God," and he ends with "Father yeah, yeah. it's an interesting yeah, you, train. you see that yeah it is he
1: doesn't say and I think we see there that,
0: my father, what? my father, why have you forsaken me
1: no there's and it's that forsaking, yeah, and so I think there's there you see the the wrath, the judgment, you know we want justice if we've been sinned against, but there's a justice. That isn't in this life that is in the next, but there's also a mercy. The mercy is seen at the cross of Christ, where Jesus gave up his life and experienced you know more than just a physical death there's something spiritual happening here and 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 that's where I think that you see this disconnect with God this uh, father the this this brokenness that we deserve, but he took our place in
0: mm-hmm these yeah, are these are such
1: a good observation there.
0: These are such sacred words, and you've tackled them well, uh, Rob. It's been uh, a delight uh, having you on the show and, and meeting you and hearing, again, your Thanks, insights Phil. to these uh, uh, last words. Seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross. Uh, Robert J. Nash has been my guest. And, Rob, uh, have a wonderful uh, Lenten season and happy Easter. I'll be the first to say it nice and early. Hey, thank you. You are you, bet. Well, to you. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with lots more. Super Tuesday today, I like to think of it as super duper Tuesday because every day when you 're following the Lord is super, but what 's going on politically in the in this big delegate going to be all these delegates are going to be passed out among all the candidates and frankly i don 't know what to make of all that, and I need some help so i 'm going to go to uh my starting pitcher, Reverend Ben Johnson, he's a senior editor at the Acton Institute. It was a regular on The Morning Show when I did mornings, and he got so popular that he started getting better tables in restaurants, and he just got so big that I, I couldn't get a hold of him anymore. Now he's joining us again on The Afternoon Show. Ben, welcome back.
2: Good to be with you, Bill. <laughs> and thank you for sending me on my way to uh, stardom.
0: Yeah, oh, of course. I, I just did what I could do. All right, so Ben, let's figure out what's going on. I want to understand uh, this the Bernie Sanders, and he calls it a revolution. The whole thing is a little bit uh, scary to me.
2: As well it should be. Uh, what he's talking about is a form of organizing social life that's totally antithetical to everything that America was founded upon. So our founding fathers, of course, spoke about the rights, to life, liberty, and property, and uh, the pursuit of happiness the ability to order your own life according to your faith, according to your conscience, and to live in peace with others and enjoy the things that you earn. Bernie Sanders has the exact opposite model that, uh, A, there is no right to life, of course. Uh, The democratic position is abortion on demand at least until birth, funded by the federal government. Uh, There's no right to liberty. The government will generally direct you, tax you. Uh, tax after they tax the income, then they tax the wealth. After they tax the wealth, if you die, they tax the estate. Uh, And there's just simply one tax after another, after another. And then there's no right to uh, the pursuit of happiness, particularly with his uh, very urgent willingness to apologize for communist regimes around the world.
0: I mean, he has sung the praises of, of like every Marxist regime of all time, hasn't he?
2: Pretty much. uh, You know, given this, he's consistent, if nothing else. He has been a consistent leftist his entire career, uh, democratic socialist. And in the the time in which he was growing up, that meant that, A, you looked up to the Soviet Union before the fall of – before Stalin's death when Khrushchev had the secret speech and he exposed all of the crimes of Stalinism. The left at that time apologized for the show trials. You had people like Walter Durante denying they even happened, covering up the Holodomor, the starvation of millions in Ukraine deliberately by the USSR. And then when that dream fell apart, they looked for another savior. So they would embrace Mao or Vietnam or Cuba. And when he speaks about those, you hear him almost like a young child speaking about Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron. Uh, you know, when he looks up to these sorts of regimes, And there's a very specific reason I mentioned in the piece that I wrote uh, last week for Acton.org about exactly why he can't condemn regimes like this. it has to do with the time that he grew up, which is the democratic socialist left during the 1960s and 70s had to distance itself from the Soviet Union, but they still wanted to believe socialism was a moral good – So they came up with a new force and a new way of explaining the world so that they didn't have to completely give up on every socialist model in the world, which had been by that time become repressive. So they said, the West focuses on individual rights, like the right to speech, right to religion, the right to vote for more than one candidate. uh, And those are individual rights. But then the socialist countries emphasize economic rights. So when he speaks about breadlines being a good thing, that's where he's coming from, the idea that the government must give you a, your daily bread rather than relying on our Lord and uh, our own good ingenuity. And so any, any socialist regime, regardless of whether they line people up by the thousands and have them machine gunned or not, gets a point if they have socialist programs, no matter how destructive those programs are to the economy, much less to liberty. Mm-hmm.
0: And it doesn't seem that Bernie Sanders ever talks about uh, the, the the human rights records and uh, of, of abuse with these regimes?
2: Rarely, if ever. You know, when it comes to, uh, for example, today we have a perfect example of this with Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And up until very recently, he refused to call Nicolas, Nicolas Maduro a dictator. Now, here you have a man who rigged the last election transparently. Everyone on every side understands this was not a free election. You had him machine gunning, gunning down people in the streets who were demanding that uh, the vote be respected. And yet, uh, at the exact same time this is happening, Bernie Sanders says, I don't know if he's if he's a dictator or not. Uh, in, you know, no freedom of press, even the distribution of food is being weaponized, to use uh, a phrase that AOC recently used about Christians, because only those who support Nicolas Maduro and the Bolivarian socialist regime that's in power in Venezuela get to eat. Everyone else has uh, the meager food that is available denied them so they can go to the party supporters. And it's this way everywhere in the world where the government's in charge of food distribution. Uh, it's simply um, it's, a, it's not a bug. It's a feature of socialism.
0: So, Ben, why, why did why does Bernie have such a favorable view of all of this? I mean, he did tour in the 80s. Uh, would you explain to our listeners sort of what his experience was like and why he walked away feeling favorable about it?
2: Well, he truly did. You know, he went to he went to Cuba. He's He's been to Cuba. He's been to Nicaragua particularly. And uh, then, of course, he famously honeymooned with his second wife, Jane, in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. And the main reason when he came back, he said, I didn't see any bread lines. I didn't see anyone hungry over there. And, of course, you wouldn't. The, the entire point of these is propaganda for credulous Westerners to be taken in. Uh, matter of fact, there's a group uh, in the West – uh, called uh, Global Exchange, which specializes in these sorts of tours to communist countries. They take them through Potemkin villages, where you know, everything is stacked and it looks immaculate, because it only exists for the tourists. You never see the real life of anyone, how anybody in the regime actually lives. So they come back, they drink in the propaganda, and they say, it's beautiful. Jimmy Carter did it when he was in North uh, Korea, back in when he was negotiating what ultimately gave them several nuclear weapons. Uh, when he negotiated that uh, treaty, uh, that agreement, he ended up saying that he was over there and the stores there were stacked as well as the Walmart in America's, Georgia. Uh, so that's the kind of tour that they get is mm-hmm. a, a propaganda tour.
0: Uh, ben, why is Sanders so enamored with the literacy campaigns?
2: Well, literacy, as I say, you know, he's always in favor of the government providing what Christians, what individuals, what churches and especially what families and parents should be providing for themselves. You know, the primary person who should be educating is the parent, and he should be, he or she, the parent should be choosing the educators and the education that the child receives. So if they want them to go to a a faith-based school, they would go to one. Uh, Instead, in Cuba, places like that, there were literacy campaigns in the 1950s. In fact, in the piece I linked to an article by uh, a writer, Democrat, by the way, Uh, For the Miami Herald, who talks about how her mom was involved in one back in the 50s before Castro came to town, how her mother had to ride. um, She had to go in a Jeep where there were no roads and then ended up having to take a a horse up into the mountains. And it's really a moving account. But these literacy campaigns, so-called, they would teach people to read but then they would deny them the right to read what they wanted to read. They would be able only to read pro- communist propaganda. They would teach them communist slogans. It was a form of indoctrination by the state in the guise of literacy. And, you know, we have the same thing today. People go off to college and they think they're well-educated. and Ultimately, they're just getting indoctrinated in the woke ideology of the left.
0: hmm I had a, a listener, uh, Ben, that has already jumped on with a question saying, is the massive youth support for Bernie a result of liberal education?
2: It absolutely is. Uh, if you if you take liberal education to its terminus, you'll find Bernie Sanders waiting there with his open arms. You know, uh, ultimately, you've had this intersectional idea that uh, each group is oppressed a little bit, and uh, at the bottom of the scale, you have uh, Christians and and uh, others, uh, for example. And then as you go up, uh, as you go up the scale, the most persecuted is actually the one who's the most celebrated and should be the most powerful uh, in their ideology. That's exactly what Bernie Sanders is saying. Uh, and in order to rectify all this, you need the state to step in and massively redistribute ill gotten gains that uh, the country was born in original sin with slavery. You've never atoned for slavery despite 600,000 deaths in the Civil War and hundreds of years, you know, more than 100 years of racial animosity and civil rights struggles and everything else that's, in their mind, never been rectified. And so you need a massive government program to redistribute wealth according to its intersectional guidelines. That's what Bernie's offering. That's what Elizabeth Warren, to a certain degree, is offering. All of of the candidates on the left uh, who are running today are offering some variant of that program. And uh, ultimately, Bernie Sanders is the one who's speaking the language of the youth because they have finally met him at his point of left-wing radicalism.
0: Mm. Ben, why does socialism always seem to fight against the church? It seems like every communist country has persecuted Christians.
2: It has, and uh, frankly, it's because socialism is a religion. Communism is a false religion. Uh, that's really all that it is. Uh, and I wrote a, a piece for our cover issue of uh, Religion and Liberty, which uh, people can get at acton.org, uh, specifically about this, how as people come to believe in socialism, socialism is a fairy tale. There's no way that you can have earthly equality uh, here on Earth. That's the kingdom of heaven, but it's mm-hmm. a utopia. And so as they come to believe in that, uh Ultimately, they look at that and they see that Christianity deals in real-world concepts. It says that human beings are equal in the eyes of God, but they won't all be equal in terms of what they make on Earth. And God isn't really concerned with what we make. Take no thought of what you will eat or what you will wear. And so they, they, in bitterness, turn against the Christian church and say it's a defender of orthodoxy. It's a defender of the status quo. It's apologizing for the oppressors. And capitalism is a form of oppression. Uh, so... When it really comes down to it, the bottom line is they have an ideology that borders on religion, and that ideology reconfirms what Jesus always said, which is, you cannot serve God and mammon, you must choose one or the other.
0: Mm -hmm. As government would then get bigger, and it would seem that the goal of government would be to try to uh, have everything being filled by the state, which is really the opposite of America, isn't it?
2: And it's the opposite of uh, what Christians should hope right. for, which is that the state will ultimately displace the church, as it has in not just in communist countries, but even in social welfare states like Great Britain. You know, of course, they have a state church, so it's a little bit different. But over there, the, the Church of England cheered when uh, the National Health Service or the national government in various programs decided to displace Christian ministries. And you end up seeing the result is that you have rationing of health care, where Christian ministries would not ration, wouldn't turn anyone away, where you have state education that is miseducation in many ways, and in fact uh, says that a Christian point of view is harmful to human dignity. Uh, The the, uh, UK a while back in a ruling said that to believe that God created mankind male and female and called it good is an offense against human dignity. Uh, So you have the state ultimately pushing an ideology and it, it minimizes the church, Ultimately, the Church ends up fading away, and a statist ideology replaces it. It is truly a war of worldviews.
0: And then, Ben, it seems like you will find socialists borrowing Christian language, like charity and compassion and caring for the poor. I mean, they're they're hijacking language, and it's like uh, everything can be done, every piece of good can be done through the government.
2: Always, and sometimes it's explicitly Christian. A lot of people heard Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say that anyone who refuses to do a medical procedure of any kind is uh, no different than a Klansman, <laughs> that they are weaponizing uh, ideology, religious liberty ideology, in order to uh, advance bigotry. And so she's turning Christian Christian language inside out. For example, she to a transgender person said, I believe that your life is sacred. I believe life is sacred. But she won't apply that to the unborn child. Uh, she will only apply it in cases where it would batter down the rights of people to act according to their conscience, and that's ultimately what it comes down to, is, is a question of which God it is that you serve. Uh, for those of us who believe in the true God, we believe that people should be free to live according to their conscience right? and if People uh, can't receive service from one doctor. They can go to another who has no objections. Mm-hmm. They have the right to do as they like, but uh, they shouldn't be able to compel people to do something that they believe is sinful. And that's really what's on chopping block here.
0: Yeah. So, Ben, when you look at Bernie's faith life, he, you know, is probably cultural Jewish, but just says that he doesn't really have a faith. He doesn't really have a profession of faith in, in any kind. I think America is ready for a leader like that?
2: Well, I certainly hope not for a lot of reasons, not, not uh, you know, because he's culturally Jewish or anything of the like, I can think of a lot of Jewish people to be good presidents. Oh, absolutely. Uh, whose, whose policies I would endorse 100%. Absolutely. He, he is not the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people I think who could fill that role. I hope that he is not the one because he would destroy freedom. Uh, the fact is, I think that politicians do better and we all do better if the people we're dealing with believe in a higher power. If nothing else, they have a greater incentive to be honest in this life.
0: Mm-hmm. Reverend Ben Johnson is my guest. He's uh, from the Acton Institute. That's A-C-T-O-N. You go to acton.org to learn more about Ben and his writing. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. talking to Reverend Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Always nice to uh, get his perspective. Uh, Ben, as we chat about Bernie Sanders and socialism, and you start to uh, feel uh, that they will be using terms and and manipulative ways of saying, well, don't you care for poor people? Um, And that translates into, how about you just give the government all your money and we'll take care of it, which is not what Christ has in mind for us.
2: No, it's this old fallacy, which goes way back, which is the idea that if you don't want the government to do something, you don't want something done. Uh, That's the opposite of what Christians believe. We believe that the government doesn't do it efficiently. The government will, whenever the government does something, first of all, it'll establish an enormous bureaucracy. Second of all, it will have terms that have to, by necessity, deal with everybody. You can't deal with a specific person or minister to them, look them in the eyes, and if they're abusing the program you can't do anything as long as they're acting within the letter of the law Uh, if they need more than what you're giving them you can't do that either so the church can do all of those things and more importantly the church can minister to the most important part of the person which is the soul establish a relationship with jesus christ tell them that god loves them cares for them wants them to thrive in this world and ultimately after a long life of serving others enter into his heavenly kingdom with the angels so that's that's what the Church can offer that the state can never offer, mm-hmm. and uh, you know so we have we have that vision, but we're constantly being told that you don't really care, even though we really care more, right. mostly because we want it, we want to get our hands dirty and do it and love people ourselves, put our arms around people and embrace them and walk with them instead of just saying, why don't you go down to the government office and get a check
0: right now Ben, you would probably agree that socialism based on greed and covetousness.
2: Oh, it totally is. Uh, That is the very basis of socialism. It's the idea that somebody has something and I want it. Mm -hmm. I should have that. It's not right that they have it. And so you hear people like uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say billionaires shouldn't exist. And whether they mean that existentially, like the the concept of billionaires shouldn't exist, or whether they mean that literally, the way that uh, the Soviet Union implemented it by Mm -hmm. machine gunning them to death, uh, you end up having the exact same idea that some people are just by nature bad or evil because they worked hard or made a lot of money uh, that's not how christians look at things no one is bad or evil as in a category by themselves the manichaeans uh, the ancient heresy of the manichaeans which saint augustine of hippo fought against believed that way people are good or bad based on their moral actions and everyone is held to the same standard regardless of where you begin or where you end everyone is held to the same account so if someone made money through a corrupt grant or through uh, a crony relationship with the government and they managed to get a, a sweetheart deal from the government, as so many people do through government contracts, that's immoral. If they don't provide what they say that they'll provide, that's immoral. But if they're doing what they say they're going to do and they're offering a service that a lot of people seem to like and enjoy and it doesn't harm anyone, that's we And we should, we should uh, be thankful that people are willing to offer that service. But yeah, socialism is simply based around the idea that other people own things, and I want it. And I should be able to instrumentalize the government in taking it from one person and giving it to another uh, for no particular reason, except that uh, the government has the power and the, uh, the force to be able to do so.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Ben, just for the sake of discussion here, we can also say that capitalism has hurt people when it's not been based on morality.
2: Oh, absolutely! If it's not based on uh, mor- uh, on a moral basis, anything will hurt people. Yeah. And capitalism—I mean, thank God, capitalism produces a great abundance of goods. But it's like the Google search engine; it will bring whatever it is that you ask of it out. Which is why capitalism—you uh, know—if if the greater overarching social values value virtue, for example, then you'll have a virtuous republic and a virtuous capital market. If you have uh, a value for pornography. The market will produce that with amazing efficiencies we've seen over the last several decades be able to pump it into that uh, sludge into every single uh, online forum so it depends on the overarching culture that's why uh, since since markets produce whatever it is the people want people who support capitalism should also always want uh, a moral order uh, to accompany that otherwise as our founding father said we have no government that is is, uh, equipped to deal with an immoral people Uh, If you have a small government, it means that you have to govern yourself according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments, and if you don't, then the government will have to step in, and ultimately that's what we've seen over the last several years is families have broken down, faith has dissipated, faith has been driven out of the schools, and uh, families have dissolved. You have have illegitimacy up to uh, 70% in some communities becoming the norm all over the world. The, the government steps in. It has to be father, mother, educator, therapist. The government ultimately becomes total through these means of people shrinking and uh, not stepping up to do their duty.
0: Mm-hmm. So Michael Bloom- Bloomberg, also a, a player on the stage uh, today in a big way. He's got a big wallet and interesting comment he made about uh, farmers that I still think is going to be a sticking point for him.
2: Uh, interesting comments everywhere from uh, Michael Bloomberg. You know, he's he's a billionaire and he's used to speaking his mind and having everyone say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, you know, please, please sign the check on the back if you would please endorse it. And uh, you know, he's, he's been able to do that. I think what we're going to see today is that um, there, there is no state in which he is polling in first uh, that I have seen. Now, it may mean that their internals are showing something else. We could be surprised today. But I think you're going to see Bernie Sanders bring in the, sh- the lion's share of delegates, particularly in California. Uh, From what I've seen, he's ahead in Texas still, Uh, so I think that you're going to see a a very large share of delegates for Bernie, 1,300 delegates on the line today. But uh, Bloomberg uh, is no friend of religious liberty, to say the least. When he was mayor of New York City, uh, he refused to let Christian or or Jewish ministries or any other kind of ministry use public schools on the weekends, even though other organizations could rent that space and use it. Uh, He denied that to uh, Christians. And then he denied the ability of a synagogue to donate meat to hurricane victims because he didn't know the sodium content. He was afraid that homeless wow. people who, who had no home left, their, their dwelling had been destroyed, uh, would be upset because they were slowly getting hypertension without knowing it. Uh, so that's that's the sort of nanny state uh, that Michael Bloomberg is living in. I think ultimately he's going to find you know, – he's been a, a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent, now a Democrat again – His party membership makes Mitt Romney look like a pillar of stability. Uh, I think he's going to find that uh, his ideas are too far right for what's become a Democratic Socialist Party.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there a little bit of last-minute horse trading going on? Because it's interesting how Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropped out of the race the day before Super Tuesday. And I'm thinking uh, in Minnesota, where I live, uh, people were voting in advance by the tens and tens of thousands. And a lot of them probably voted for Amy. Now all those votes don't count.
2: Well, exactly. Any any vote that was cast for anyone who's dropped out of the race uh, is effectively uh, a vote that you've just torn up and thrown into the air. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's no question that uh, Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke have all secured something from, from Joe Biden. If he's elected, they'll have some place in the cabinet or maybe on the ticket, uh, depending on what what it is that Biden needs. I don't think any of them will end up uh, as vice president because he needs greater diversity, particularly an African-American, an African-American woman uh, would probably be the ideal. But I think all of them will have a place in the cabinet and in the intelligentsia, uh, the advisors. And uh, if they don't end up there, then they'll end up part of that permanent lobbying network on K Street that uh, lives off of government contracts and produces very little else.
0: Mm -hmm. This is just uh, an ask for your opinion, Ben. Do you think it'll be a brokered convention in the summer?
2: We have a lot of signs pointing to that direction. Yeah. I'll tell you, though, the most recent the most recent polls that I've seen now with everything that's happened last minute, I think Biden will uh, will have a little bit more of a surge. But there are several polls, particularly in California, where he was not even breaking 15 percent, which wow. means you get zero delegates. So it's possible if anyone has a key to winning all the delegates that are necessary, it'll be Bernie. If it's a brokered convention and superdelegates get to vote, uh, the nomination is going to be handed to someone else, regardless of who comes in first. Wow,
0: that's that's amazing. Ben, really nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for taking time to do the show this afternoon with me. It's uh, great to have you back on.
2: Wonderful to be on. Thanks so much, Bill. God you bless.
0: Bet, you bet. Reverend Ben Johnson has been my guest. He is the senior editor at the Acton Institute. If you go to acton.org, A-C-T-O-N, acton.org, you can uh, read the articles that we discussed just on the program today and learn more about uh, the great writing over at Acton.org. We're going to take a little break. We come back. Hour two is uh, ahead. We're going to start with Allie Worthington. She's going to be in town for uh, a conference coming up at Northwestern this weekend.